All right, we're back. We're, we've gotten as far as the mid-19th century in talking about political parties in America. Let us swoop back to mid-century. Note that General Zachary Taylor, now America's 12th president, because a lot of pro-slavery supporters thought his administration would be pro-slavery, and turned out they were wrong. When California applied for admission to the Union as a free state, Zachary Taylor agreed and asked Congress to admit it immediately. The political problem was that admitting California as a free state would upset the even balance of free and slave states, putting free states in the majority. If California were admitted as a free state, they noted it would also upset the tradition set by the Missouri Compromise in 1820, which banned slavery in the new territories north north of 36 and a half degrees. Now, Missouri was above that particular line of latitude, but it got admitted as a slave state, uh, you know, due to politics. Southern factions wanted this 36.5-degree line to apply to California, which would have made slavery legal in Southern California. I was not really aware of this fact, but the admission of California as a free state damn near commenced the Civil War early. What probably stopped that from happening was the actions of Senator Henry Clay, who pushed through the Compromise of 1850. One of its most controversial provisions was that the land east of California got divided into the Utah and New Mexico territories with their final status as a free or slave's territory intentionally left vague. It was still possible that both might choose to become slave states. Meanwhile, slaveholders and abolitionists were free to settle in these territories. The Compromise of 1850 also upped the Fugitive Slave Law and got the federal government more directly involved in the capture and return of slaves who escaped into the free states. The new law compelled federal marshals to assist in capturing slaves even if they opposed slavery. The marshals then faced fines of up to $1,000, a lot of money back then, if they failed to do so. If a slave escaped while in their custody, they were liable for the full value of the slave. And for the first time, anyone who assisted a slave trying to escape could be fined and even jailed for up to six months. Fugitive slaves were denied a trial by jury and were not allowed to testify on their own behalf. But what really seemed to rile people was this unresolved status of the territories and the admission of California as a free state. Letting the citizens of a territory organize themselves as they saw fit sounded reasonable, but this popular sovereignty idea proved to be very problematic. It undermined an important premise of the Missouri Compromise, which was that Congress, not the people, had the power to ban slavery. By 1854, tensions escalated dramatically when Senator Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois introduced legislation opening much of the Indian territories to white settlers. Called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the legislation carved two new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, from land previously used to relocate Native American Indian tribes forcibly removed from their ancestral lands east of the Mississippi. Of course, I guess they still left them Oklahoma until that, too, was open to white settlers, but I must not digress. Now, per the Missouri Compromise, Kansas and Nebraska were both north of the 36-and-a-half-degree line, meaning that slavery should be outlawed there. But Douglas was determined to apply popular sovereignty to the new territories, giving settlers the right to decide the slavery question for themselves. Turns out he wasn't motivated by a desire to expand slavery. He wanted to get a northern transcontinental railroad built from Chicago, his home state, to the Pacific. Running the tracks through Nebraska made the most sense. But to do that, he needed to set up a new territory. And to do that, he needed the support of the South. 
They weren't about to let another free territory evolve into another free state, so Douglas appeased them by applying that principle of popular sovereignty. Douglas only wanted to organize one territory in Nebraska along these lines, but the Southerners insisted upon having two, and President Franklin Pierce, a Democrat, agreed with them. Thus was passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which infuriated Northerners, who for more than 30 years had viewed that 36.5-degree line as sacred. What would follow in the Kansas Territory was four years of violence as both sides of the slavery issue rushed settlers there to claim the territory for their side. Another casualty of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, President Franklin Pierce. The Democrats didn't even bother to nominate him for a second term. He just served out the rest of his term and went home. The Whig Party was another casualty. Already damaged by the fight over the Compromise of 1850, it collapsed when anti-slavery conscious Whigs bolted the party by the end of 1854, the party was over. Where did it go? Well, the conscious Whigs joined with other anti-slavery elements to form a brand new party that made its priority the opposition to slavery in the new territories. Drawing inspiration from the Jeffersonian Republicans, the group named itself the Republican Party. The struggle had generated so much controversy that Stephen Douglas, uh, who wanted to be president, decided to pass. The Democrats then nominated former Secretary of State James Buchanan. He was rendered attractive by the fact that during the controversy over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he was out of the country, having been minister to Great Britain. The Republicans nominated former California Senator John C. Fremont as their candidate. James Buchanan won, but Fremont made an impressive showing, winning 11 states. Two days after Buchanan was inaugurated as president, the Supreme Court handed down the infamous Dred Scott decision. Years earlier, Scott, a slave, had been taken by his owner, a U.S. Army surgeon, to live in Illinois, which had outlawed slavery. Scott sued for his freedom, arguing that living where slavery was banned made him a free man. The Supreme Court disagreed, finding that as a Negro, Scott was not an American citizen to begin with, and thus had no right to sue in federal court. Even if he did, the Chief Justice argued, any laws excluding slavery from U.S. territories were unconstitutional because they violated the Fifth Amendment by depriving slave owners of their property without due process. He wrote, The right of property in a slave is directly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Thus, it suddenly seemed that as every state in the Union might then become a slave state. For many Americans, the Dred Scott decision was the final straw. It seemed impossible that North and South could remain together as a country. Even Abraham Lincoln observed in a debate with Douglas the following year, this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. At that time, Lincoln was challenging Douglas for a seat in the U.S. Senate and lost. But during the second of their seven celebrated debates between Lincoln and Douglas, Douglas ruined his chance to become president, apparently, by, well, when being challenged by Lincoln to reconcile popular sovereignty with the Dred Scott decision, asking if slavery laws were unconstitutional, how were anti-slavery settlers supposed to ban slavery? Douglas replied that if settlers refused to legislate local slave codes, which protected the rights of slave owners, those owners would not bring their slaves into the territory because their property rights were not guaranteed. This doctrine certainly did not appease Northerners and angered Southerners as well. Douglas managed to win the 1860 Democratic nomination for president, but those Southern Democrats were so angry with him that rather than support him, they split off the party and nominated their own candidate, John Breckinridge. Thus, Abraham Lincoln, the second Republican candidate to run for president, won in 1860, leading, of course, to the 
notorious civil war. At any rate, the victory by the Republican Party in 1860 would usher in an era of Republican domination that lasted until the Great Depression of the early 1930s. Of the 18 presidential elections held between 1860 and 1932, the Republicans won 14. Which gets us near the conclusion of this entire lengthy discussion, which I hope you found worthwhile. Uncle John's notes, you may be asking yourself, aren't the Democrats the liberal ones and the Republicans the social conservatives? Well, political parties switch ideologies more often than you might think. And in this case, the Democrats and Republicans remain set in their 19th century platforms until the late 1920s. Then the Great Depression hit. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat, believed the way out was via government intervention, more social programs, and more safety nets. The Republicans back then, like now, believed that free market capitalism would get the country going again. But it was the practices of Wall Street executives, most of whom were Republicans, that caused the financial collapse that led to the Great Depression. As a result, most Americans blamed the hard times on the Republicans, and the GOP was again the opposition party. It should be noted that in the 50s and 60s, as previously reported on Radio Parallax on numerous occasions, the Republicans cast their eyes on the South, seeking votes there by promising a smaller, less intrusive government, and more importantly, states' rights. And by the 1960s, the party started by Abraham Lincoln that had brought about the end of slavery through the Civil War was now the same party associated with opposing civil rights. If I had more time to go into this today, which I do not, I would about the election of 1876 to this mix. Yes, it is true that black people revered the Republican Party and voted Republican up until the 1950s out of gratitude for Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, while meanwhile the Southern Democrats became the party of segregation. But I would argue that it was the theft of the election of 1876 wherein the victor, Democrat Samuel Tilden, got aced out by Republican Rutherford B. Hayes that we really saw the wholesale abandonment of the principles the Republicans had established in the 1850s in favor of returning the South to the hands of the Democratic Party to run that region the way they would like to. Anyway, bitter political fights are nothing new in American history, although they certainly have taken on a nastier tone than typical, I would say, of late. It is curious to look back at, at how our politics are dominated by parties, simply because it's an, it's an easy way to organize people, particularly when you're trying to <laughs> seize the reins of power. By way of review, our first two presidents, George Washington and John Adams, were Federalists, but their party was dead by 1820. Technically, we had four Whig presidents, but they only managed to win two elections because they're, the guy at the top of the ticket croaked both times. So if you subtract those two elections and the three won by Washington and Adams, what you're left with is the fact that all but five American presidential elections went to the Democratic Party or its ancestors or the Republican Party. But I hope in some future installment of this program we'll take a look back at some of the more amusing and goofy parties that uh, dominated the scene for a while. People like Martin Van Buren's Free Soil Party, people like the Mugwumps, people like the Know Nothing Party. In the 15 or so minutes we have left, I'd like to return to our regular broadcasting. But before I do that, I do want to pull one final item out of Uncle John's political briefs, which is that the chimpanzee known as Tiao was the big attraction at the Rio de Janeiro Zoo. 
His name translates as Big Uncle. He was famous for his bad temper if anyone got too close to Tiao. Be they staff, zoo guests, or even visiting dignitaries, he would spit at them and throw excrement, which you might say is perfect temperament for political office, right? Well, that's what a group of activists in Brazil thought. Led by the comedy team of Cassetta and Planeta, they thought, let's run Tiao for mayor of Rio in 1988. Under the banner of the newly formed Banana Party, they convinced more than 400,000 Brazilians fed up with the corruption at Rio's City Hall to vote for him. I love their slogan, vote monkey, get monkey. And although 400,000 Rio de Janeiro citizens did vote monkey, Tiao only came in third in the election. When he died in 1996, Rio's human mayor declared a week-long mourning period. And when I was reading in Political Briefs this section, I stumbled in the very next section upon something which really struck close to home, the story of Bosco. In 1981, in the hamlet of Sonol, described as a tiny rural community located east of San Francisco, and I would note that it's also located seven and a half miles from where I'm recording this at the moment, two locals argued over which of them would make the better mayor and decided to hold an unofficial election to settle the dispute. Another local named Brad Lieber entered his dog Bosco, a Labrador Rottweiler mutt, who ran as a publican with a platform of a bone in every dish, a cat in every tree, and a fire hydrant on every street corner. When the votes were counted, Bosco was the new honorary mayor of Sonol. Now, back in 1981, and even now, very few people knew much about Sonol. That changed after Bosco's election. The Chinese newspaper People's Daily reported that Bosco was proof that Western democracy was a failed system. It couldn't even distinguish between people and dogs. Sonol residents, now the focus of international controversy, retorted that the newspaper had no sense of humor. Meanwhile, domestically, our national news, including Tom Brokaw of NBC, would sometimes meet with Bosco for a, quote, interview. He was such a success that Sonolians re-elected him six times. When he passed away at age 15, he got memorialized in the Sonol restaurant Bosco's Bones and Brew with a life-size replica. Now, by the time we conduct our next program, Mr. Miller and I intend to go visit Bosco's, Bosco's Bones and Brew, which still exists, and see if we can find someone to talk to us about their immortal honorary mayor. All right, in the time we got left, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for rebranding with the news that the Department of Energy has started referring to U.S. natural gas as freedom gas. In this rebranding effort, department officials described a project to export liquefied natural gas as, quote, critical to spreading freedom gas throughout the world by giving America's allies a diverse and affordable source of clean energy, unquote. To drive home the point, an official described natural gas as, quote, molecules of U.S. freedom, unquote. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for voters in the wake of the current huge wave of voter suppression in the United States. Uh, the example here is of 97-year-old former San Antonio Mayor Lila Cockrell. 
She was turned away as she attempted to vote in the mayoral runoff election because she no longer has a driver's license or a passport. Election officials in Texas said they knew who she was, but the law is the law. And finally, speaking of Texas, it was an ugly week last week for bar fighters. After Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a bipartisan bill repealing the ban on carrying brass knuckles. The previous ban was antithetical to our rights to self-defense, said Democratic State Representative Joe Moody. Well, Mr. Merlin does have to speculate about how many Texans are going to wind up taking brass knuckles to a gunfight there in the Lone Star State. But uh, we do have one curious item as regards uh, Second Amendment uh, discussions. It turns out that the United States Supreme Court has rejected a challenge to federal regulations on gun silencers. This occurred days after a gunman used one in a shooting rampage killing 12 in Virginia. The justices did not comment in turning away appeals from two Kansas men who were convicted of violating federal laws regulating silencers. The men argued that the constitutional right to keep and bear arms includes silencers. I, I have to speculate that it's, it's hard to envision how a well-regulated militia back in the 1780s needed silencers for their muskets. But hey, I'm no Second Amendment scholar. And speaking of regulations or lack of them, there, there is a current story out there that notes that, well, according to the headlines, the battle against robocalls is getting a boost from new regulations. This comes from the news last week that federal regulators voted to give phone companies the right to block unwanted calls without getting customers' permission first, which seems pretty, pretty odd. The FCC could make call blocking widespread and help consumers dodge annoying robocalls, which have exploded into a problem that pesters Americans on a level of billions of calls per month. But uh, there's a caveat to this. The phone companies don't actually have to do anything. And they can start charging you if they do. The FCC expects phone companies to offer these tools for free, but doesn't require them to. Is this, is this kind of like that concept of voluntary taxation? The Associated, the Associated Press is reporting that the scammers don't care if you added your number to the government's do-not-call list. The enforcement is negligible. The math works out to 5 billion robocalls per month in the U.S., which is 14 calls per U.S. citizen. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai believes phone companies will have an incentive to step up and offer these services for free. Well, maybe. Verizon has said it will evolve its free call blocking tool for wireless customers. AT&T did not answer questions about its plans, but said it's committed to fighting illegal and unwanted calls. T-Mobile said it hadn't made a decision yet on whether to make default free calling blocking tools. They haven't even got around to making them. Great. Sprint, which charges for its call blocking service, said last week it was looking at, quote, additional solutions, unquote, and was optimistic that changes would let it take more aggressive actions. Well, we'll see about that. You know, we failed to note on last week's program that it was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of Europe. To make up for that, we would like to refer you to our archives, dear listener, to our interview with Richard C. Hodlett, who on the D-Day invasion was working for CBS News under Edward R. Murrow. Hodlett's report on the battle was the first that reached Americans through shortwave, I believe. And he was a most, most engaging interview subject. If you didn't catch it the first time, 
please do yourself a favor and go to Radio Parallax and pull up our talk with Richard C. Hodlett. This week saw another anniversary, that of the Chinese massacre at Tiananmen Square. Criticizing the actions of the Chinese government 30 years ago earned U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo some spite from Chinese authorities. They said that he would end up on the ash heap of history for his strong statements marking the massacre. Those statements included, quote, China's one-party state tolerates no dissent and abuses human rights. He called upon Beijing to, quote, make a full public accounting of those killed or missing or to give comfort to the many victims of this dark chapter in history, unquote. Wow. It's not often I find myself agreeing with Mike Pompeo, but... I'm with him on that one. By way of review, it was on June 4th in 1989 that Chinese troops opened fire on the one million pro-democracy protesters in Tiananmen Square. They'd been demonstrating in the heart of Beijing for weeks. Up to 10,000 people were killed in the massacre. Ever since then, Beijing has censored all mention of the massacre and the 89 democracy movement, jailing anyone who tweets words that even sound like the number 89. The Chinese foreign ministry called Pompeo's criticism, quote, lunatic ravings and babbling nonsense, unquote. Which brings us to what's currently going on in Hong Kong. A sizable proportion of the population of Hong Kong has taken to the streets to demonstrate of late. The week, as it so often does, has an excellent briefing section describing the details of these goings-on. To the question, why is there a conflict, the magazine said that China has reneged on its promise to give Hong Kong a high degree of political and economic autonomy under the policy of one country, two systems. The latest assault on the city's independence is a new law rammed through by the Beijing-imposed chief executive, Carrie Lam, that would give China some control over Hong Kong's justice system. This extradition law would enable Beijing to pressure Hong Kong authorities to transfer certain suspects to mainland China, where the Kafka-esque court system uses forced confessions and closed trials to find 99% of defendants guilty. Beijing says the law is necessary to prevent Hong Kong from becoming a haven for fugitives. Critics say it would render everyone, including Hong Kong residents and foreign business people and tourists, susceptible to Beijing's arbitrary justice. To the question of what does China fear, the magazine responded, any challenge to its authority to maintain strict Communist Party control of its vast, modernizing nation, the increasingly authoritarian government in Beijing is cracking down on dissent and independent thought. Originally, when Britain and China were negotiating over how the bustling colony would revert to Chinese rule in 1897, Beijing indicated that Hong Kong would have a special degree of autonomy. But China's rulers were deeply alarmed by the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989 and when they drew up basic law, the Hong Kong Constitution in 1990, they did not include direct democracy. Instead, they created an election committee packed with pro-Beijing representatives to select the Hong Kong chief executive, who is the equivalent of a governor. Direct democracy to elect Hong Kong leaders was supposed to be gradually introduced, but in 2014, Beijing announced that when people could finally vote directly, they could choose only among two or three candidates selected by the Beijing-dominated committee. It should also be noted that back in 2015, agents from mainland China kidnapped five Hong Kong booksellers and forced them to confess to selling banned books in China after they'd been spirited into the People's Republic. 
Last fall, pressured by Beijing, the Hong Kong government banned a pro-independence political party. By the way, NPR, in reporting on these latest protests, noted that many people on the streets cover their faces to prevent the advanced Chinese surveillance technology from being able to identify them. That uh, Carrie Lam has, uh, has, has endorsed this uh, extradition law. Should we note that after the first wave of protests against the Beijing control that took place in Hong Kong in, in conjunction with the Occupy movement, no sooner had those protests broken up when Hong Kong officials prosecuted dozens of pro-democracy activists, including 16 elected lawmakers. Six other lawmakers had their elections nullified on dubious grounds, giving Carrie Lam a pro-Beijing majority in the legislature. Anyway, as we close out with some politics closer to home, it's, it's rather astonishing to take a look at <laughs> the, the Democratic debates that are going to be held to supposedly weed through that uh, extensive field of candidates. I'm rather startled to see that 14 people are being described as qualified for debate based on polling and donors including Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobacher, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, former Housing Secretary Julian Castro, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, Hawaiian Representative Tulsi Gabbard, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and spiritual guru Marianne Williamson. I, I was not aware that a spiritual guru was among the frontrunners for the Democrats. can tell you that I wouldn't vote for Joe Biden based on the fact that he voted for the Iraq war when he should have known better, or Kirsten Gillibrand because she sandbagged Al Franken without sufficient cause. I'm surprised that I, I, I just, I, I can't put two and two together on former Housing Secretary Julian Castro. I do know that former Congressman Beto, Robert O'Rourke, managed to lose an election against the most popular man in the United States Senate down in Texas. The same summary lists two people that were described as qualified for debate based on polling alone, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and Ohio Representative Tim Ryan. But then four are described as qualified for debate based on polling alone at risk for being pushed out because of low polling averages. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, former Maryland Representative John Delaney, and East Bay Representative Eric Swalwell. Four were described as just not qualified for debate, including former Alaska Governor Mike Gravel, Miramar, Florida Mayor Wayne Messam, Massachusetts Representative Seth Moulton, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock. I don't know, I do want to plug Tulsi Gabbard, based on what Daniel Ellsberg had to say about her, was what she's come forward to say she is absolutely opposed to any notion of a war with Iran. Don't you wish you heard that from more people running for office? And I do want to note in closing, before anyone gets this idea, that no, neither Mr. McMillan nor I are going to run for the Democratic Party nomination for president. As for me, I'm going to follow the late Gary Shandling's statement about why it was he was not going to be a candidate. I'm personally afraid that no women are going to come forward and admit to having slept with me. That about does it for today's program. We hope to learn more about Bosco by the time we uh, meet you again. Not the chocolate syrup. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. And I want to go out with one final zinger from Uncle John's political briefs. A quote from a man named Bill Stern, who noted that our elections are free. 
It's in the results where we eventually pay. (laughs) 